from the heart of the Forest City, focusing on the biggest stories in London, this is the Craig Needles Podcast. Now here's your host, Craig Needles. It is the Craig Needles Podcast. It's the Friday Roundtable. You are here at ClassicRock981.com. You may be at LondonNewsToday.ca. You may be on your favorite podcast app wherever you are. We are glad that you have downloaded and listened in today. And for the Friday Roundtable, we are joined here in studio by activist Moshe Daycox. Jennifer Dunn, the executive director of the London Abuse Women's Center, is here, as is Classic Rock 981 program director Dan Wiley. Hello, everybody. Thank you for being here. Hello. Good to be here. Hi. Uh, let's get to. There's, there's actually a lot that I want to talk about this week. Uh, but the, the, the thing, first thing I want to talk about is, is, is human trafficking, public safety. And there was a huge bust in the city this week. And London has become known, and, and Jen can obviously speak to this, and I've talked to you about this before, Jen, as, uh, as almost a human trafficking hub. Now, this is not the type of human trafficking that you normally deal with in, in your work. It's a little bit different than that. Nonetheless, human trafficking going on here. And it's a significant problem. Uh, the conditions these people were living in were horrendous. They had their passports and everything taken away so they couldn't leave the country. They didn't know what rights they had. Uh, Jen, what was your reaction to what we uh, what we saw this week with that particular uh, a bust? Well, I think it's absolutely horrifying. And then the first thing that I go to is is you know like where were and this so this was labor trafficking, right? Yes. So where were these people working? What were they yeah. doing? Um, they were working at various you know, businesses like, in the community, so say the police. I would love to know which businesses those yeah, were. That's, so that's what I would like so, to know. Like, that's where we go when, when we talk about sex trafficking as well, right? So like, there's an issue around supply and demand. So we need to talk about ending the demand for this kind of stuff. So um, what are these companies doing that um, maybe... Are, are causing this kind of hiring in in the first place so that's like that's a, a big issue in itself um, but it, it's important for these types of conversations to happen because I think the general public needs to be aware that um, this is happening in all forms in our community um, and there's a lot to be said around um, education and public awareness as well and then the one of the big things I think about is what is going to happen to these 31 individuals now so a lot of the language that was used in in some of the reports was that these people were rescued. So what does that mean going forward? Are they going to be sent back to where they they came from? Are they going to be able to continue to live here? Um, what does that mean? Because obviously, maybe maybe it's not obvious, but in, in, in my mind and with the work that we do, a lot of these people maybe came to... to um, Canada for this opportunity that they thought was going to maybe better their lives or whatever that was going to do. Well, how can they still maybe live that way here? Or is this going to become an immigration issue? Like, what does that mean? And oftentimes we find when we're dealing with with women um, that access our services and um, are, you know, involved with immigration, like those systems are very, very difficult to navigate. So what kind of support is going to be made available for these people? Or is it just a matter of um, they're rescued now and now what? Right. So I'd, I'd like to know more about that. But, you know, it's it's horrifying. And these people did not deserve any of that, of course. No, no, they did not. And, uh, you know, what, what the way that this was all structured is that there would be ads posted in other mm-hmm. countries saying, hey, come work in Canada. And then people would respond to the ads. They would come work in Canada and find that when they were here, their conditions were horrifying and their travel documents were taken away. Moj Day, what what did you uh, think about when you saw this story? I think we need to be really critical of 
the labor market impact assessments of uh, employers and businesses who are applying for temporary foreign workers. Yes. Uh, this is not me saying that we shouldn't be accepting temporary foreign workers, but I think that we need to shift the narrative. Well, to, to you know, I, your point, sorry, uh, Craig, to your yeah. point, who are these businesses? We need to, you know, t- uh, Jen just mentioned the supply and demand issues. Businesses need to value labor the labor of working people rather beyond you know their labor facilitating profits for them right and i, I want to point to two streams of formal government vetted processes that still leave people in the same conditions as what we're hearing about these 31 people from ne- mexico that were r- r- rescued from human trafficking they've had their documents taken away they live in squalor conditions guess who else experiences these things the agricultural temporary foreign workers the seasonal agricultural workers we have had a government process that has vetted squalor conditions for men and women and other folks from all over the caribbean and latin america coming here to do work that was deemed un um not not work that folks here want to do carry out right agricultural work so we already have sort of vetted a process that says this is okay to exploit workers from other nations so there's a couple of things that we can do i think one of the one of the things that you posed earlier was exposing the businesses and and i think we need to look at the entire ecosystem uh, of demand to to exploit workers from other nations because we want low wages and squalor conditions so we can have maximum profits that's the first thing we need to do yeah, I would agree with that entirely. And I think that there's going to be people that say, well, these business owners, they may not have known what kind of conditions that these these workers are living in. I don't believe that to be true. Or at the very least, you should have an idea. When someone comes to you and says, oh yeah, I've got a temporary foreign worker who wants to work for you for this number of dollars an hour. When that's like a pathetically low number, that should set off some alarm bells somewhere to say, hey, wait a second. If you're offering me this worker for this number of dollars, that just seems as though it's too good to be true. And maybe there's something going wrong behind the scenes here. And I just, I, I don't know how that wasn't figured out. Or, and so I, I would reject the, well, I just didn't know excuse on behalf of the business. So yeah, I think that if something like this happens, and I think this is something that the police should be doing. If something like this happens, uh, if a business gets implicated in something like this, or if the business is using workers who are being treated uh, unfairly, inhumanely, that's... Let's talk about who it is. Let's, let's, let's put that in the police release so everybody knows. And let's regulate yeah. that minimum wage is minimum wage yes. regardless of where you come from. Yeah, what would, I don't care what your passport says. Correct. Here's the number of dollars exactly. you make an hour. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so. then employers should be taking care of their employees regardless of, of how they became an employee in the first place, right? So, like, maybe not even when you're talking about the money situation, but wouldn't you, like there's there are systems in place for health and safety and and like all of these policies that i know like for example our agency has to have as an executive director of an agency and we have staff i have a general idea of how my employee not they're not my employees but the staff of the center are doing what their living conditions are like you know like I know that some of these companies might be bigger than our small agency um, that's a nonprofit, but there has to be and there should be some sense of, um, you know, employer employee relationship as well. Like at such a basic level. 
right? And so how could you turn your, your, your head to that kind of thing if you know something like that's going on? Absolutely. And I think there's one other thing that we need to consider, and it's to stop spreading the narrative that Western nations um, and, and developed nations like and I say this in air quotes, folks, <laughs> developed nations are safe havens for all. And, and we need to start telling the truth about how mm-hmm. migrants are abused and exploited more often than not here. Yep. And so stop, you know, th- I think if folks knew the truth about their reality once they arrive here, they wouldn't be necessarily trying to um, tr- trying to, to secure these types of opportunities. Or, or uh, hand wave away if, uh, if, if some business is, is part of doing that. So yeah, I get that, you know, I'm not, not saying we shouldn't have temporary foreign workers, but we've got to bolster the rules surrounding that. And, and look, th- there have been some changes surrounding that, and I'll give the foreign government a little bit of credit on this particular file. They have made some changes surrounding that that I think are changes to the better. They've got to go further. They've got to go further. So uh, I I would like to see that, but I, I just, it's something that, uh, I, I don't know if there's going to be anyone pushing for it is my. I, I guess here's, the way I feel about this story is how I feel about, I think, all three of the stories that we're going to talk about today, which um, is that they're good to create a certain level of public outrage and that's where it stops. Mm. That, and I don't mean like from the government's, I mean from the public side. Yeah. This is a good story for somebody to be like, this is outrageous. Things need to change. Things need to, we need to do things better. And that's exactly where their opinion stops because those businesses who are using these workers will 100% say at some point, well, if we have to pay our workers more, that cost gets passed on to you, the, uh, you, the consumer. And that's where people kind of stop caring as much as soon as they have to pay a little bit more for their groceries or whatever. And, you know, you mentioned ecosystem. It's really econ system. There is a problem with the, the way that we are, that we have developed this belief that profit before anything else and that Uber wealth is a, an aspirational thing that we should want as opposed to a flaw in the system. And so, like, the story is horrible. The conditions these workers were in is horrible. We all know that. There's nobody who's going to argue that. I just, I always am, you know, there's a part of me that's glad when these stories come out. A, because one of them got stopped. One of them is stopped now. It's not going to end them all, but it ended this one. And so some people's lives are going to be better, hopefully because this stopped and now we're going to be a little more aware the next time this this happens there's some maybe it's as simple as having an employer question the labor (laughs) the labor prices that uh, he's quoted when they're looking for seasonal workers and i think the other part about seasonal workers there's another elephant in the room Mm -hmm. is that it's not just that we should or shouldn't have them we need them Yes. There's, that's not a, like, it's, it's nice to believe. And, you know, one of the great cons that was pulled on people was that immigrants are taking people's jobs. No, we need immigrants because there are more jobs than we have people who want to work them. And so figuring out a way to do it safely and, and humanely feels like the bare minimum. Yeah. And (laughs) we're not there. But it's, but there is a need for, for both temporary seasonal workers and uh, 
full-time workers, uh, non-seasonal, uh, that isn't going to go away anytime soon. There's recommendations out there. One last point, Craig, is that, sure. you know, we have citizen advocacy groups like Justice for Migrant Workers who, te- I mean, predominantly are galvanizing around agricultural, seasonal agricultural workers, but they have a set of recommendations that start with a pay people what they're worth here and also per- create pathways uh, for 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 residency if we are going to um, bank on on people's, literally bank on people's labor. And so there are recommendations to do this in a good way. There are advocacy groups that have been doing this for decades and pushing governments to think differently and for people to think differently and businesses to think differently about what their exchange is going to be with people's labor. It's not our responsibility to work our way into other people's profits. You know, like, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, we don't need to work our working people don't need to work themselves to the bone for other folks uh, reaping the rewards of their labor in that ex- to the point of exploitation. That is not this is not the future of work. So I think um, businesses need to get on on board with that, too. But there are recommendations out there. Uh, I want to talk about one more thing just in regards to the, the, the public safety portion of the conversation we're having here. And this is involving the public safety minister, Marco Mendocino, who is under significant pressure to resign after Paul Bernardo was moved to a minimum security prison. Now, the issue so much to me isn't so much him being moved as it is the government's general Keystone cop style incompetence routine surrounding Paul Bernardo being moved. I'm of the belief that there are far too many people who are incarcerated in this country. And that the number of people that should be incarcerated for life in Canada is very, very, very small. However, Paul Bernardo is one of those people. So is this something that impacts the government from a a public relations perspective? Because, look, there's a lot of stuff that goes on that most Canadians don't care about. But, hey, I want Paul Bernardo to be in jail is something that every single Canadian is going to have a very strong opinion on. So does the Paul Bernardo story move the needle for anyone, do you think? Okay, I'm going to say this. I do think he should resign, not because of uh, any of the Paul Bernardo stuff, but just because of the throwing people under the his employees under the bus uh, and all that, which was nonsense. Like that part, just he's not a very good leader, so he should resign. Is my thought on that. The Bernardo stuff, um, I think, is a really good litmus test for what we want to be as a society. To be honest. Uh, how are we going to treat the worst people in society? How are we going like, and I think with Bernardo, because he is the, the face of evil in our country, right? Like no, there's no, uh, there, there's nobody who was alive at that time who, uh, hears that name and doesn't feel disgusted by that person. And I think ultimately the fear that was caused over this is the belief that he needs to be punished consistently that this isn't a um for any talk that anybody has about the the prison system being about rehabilitation or uh reworking yourself back to society that's not what people want for paul bernardo that's they want him punished regularly they want him in gen pop with people who know what he did so that he can be beaten up every day sewn back together and then beaten up the next day and i think that's absolutely disgusting and well, but <laughs> to be frank, but, no, but I, I guess what I'm saying that's is just that's what, what people that's want. what people yeah. want. But we live in a society where we have to be better than that. I guess is my point. I agree. And so, 
maximum security prison is not supposed to be a permanent thing. That's the, right. according to the laws of the land. It's not supposed to be. You're supposed to be in maximum security prison to learn how to be in medium security prison. He's been in uh, max since what? 95, 95. Yes. Since 95. So 28 years. He's still going to be monitored. He's going to still be uh, in a uh, very secure location. He's still going to be monitored. It's, you know, it's, it's the system. We can dislike it all we want, but I, I guess that's where I, I don't feel the outrage about him moving to the medium security yeah. prison because I think as a society, we have to be better than the worst of us. I agree with that. Him moving is to me far from the top line information here. It's the fact that the government has just been incompetent surrounding it. And to me, like just from a pure politics perspective, if Paul Bernardo is going to go to a medium security prison, you have to know that's happening and you've got to have, you've got to be out in front of it. And that's not the way it went. Jen, your thoughts on the Bernardo story. I, I agree with what you just said, Craig, because I think like with it being such a high level or yeah, that's the right thing. High profile. Right? Like a high, high, high profile. profile. Yep case everyone should be aware of what's going on from the prime minister down like people should know what's going on to the families yeah Yeah. like the mojave and french family should be on that list yes but there's a system in place and being moved to medium security doesn't mean that he's out on the street um you know there we need to think about public safety of course and with the work that we do we always talk about this and we always talk about um you know i think we talked before craig about the bail system and just all of that and i know that's not what we're talking about right now but i think i'm just saying that because i don't want this to be taken the wrong way but bernardo also has certain human rights and does deserve certain things um and there's a reason why people are not supposed to be in maximum security for certain amounts of time and that's how the system works Um, and if you want anybody to have any sense or any ability for rehabilitation not that this guy's going to have that that's not what i'm saying there has to be certain opportunities for that kind of thing right um i mean when we look at um women who are incarcerated for and i don't mean to compare i want to be very clear about that um there's often times where um, community resources, community involvement is a lot better than being yep. in jail. Agreed. I, again, I'm not saying that that's the situation here. No. Um, <laughs> I feel like I'm like, I, I think really we can all agree Paul Bernardo was a monster but, and should yeah. be in jail. Yeah. So. Yeah. But there are systems in place. And but I, I agree with what you said, Craig. Everybody should have been on the up and up about this. People should have been aware with what is going on. But at the same time, it's not really public interest shouldn't play a role in the process of how things work, so to speak, especially since he's, it's not like he's out on yeah. bail. Or yeah. Our like thirst for much. vengeance shouldn't trump the system. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. I agree. I'm curious about, so it costs a, an average of based on 2020 numbers. So it's definitely have gone up it's, since yeah. $126,000 to keep a prisoner in a federal penitentiary in Canada. So I'm curious how that is, what what has his time in Max prison been like so mm-hmm. far? And I don't want to talk about the day-to-day abuse that he, he may be experiencing based on the horrific crimes that he carried out. What I'm interested in is what was the federal 
max prison's plan for someone as disturbed as Bernardo. Mm-hmm. I think it's just you keep him in solitary and that's it. And like, you, like they, I know that there, there for for a time he, there was a wing of Kingston Penitentiary where he was there, and Michael Rafferty was there, just like the very, very worst, absolute disgusting pieces of whatever uh, were in that particular part of Kingston. I don't know what his situation was like currently, though, yeah. and I, I I do wonder, you know. I think that there is a conversation to be had around, hey, we lock up way too many people, but this is obviously not the guy who's the jumping off point for that. No, yeah. but I am yeah. still curious. What's his rehabilitation plan? Yeah. I don't know I if mean, it if exists. That's, why do we incarcerate? I think that's the question. Yeah. Like when I, when I, when I, I think this guy him, is not incarcerated to be rehabilitated. This guy, I think, is incarcerated to be kept away from everyone else because mm-hmm. we can't trust him to not be a serial rapist and murderer. Mm-hmm. That's you know what I think. Yeah, that's, there's there's, yeah. there's two types of prisoners in prison. There's yeah. the ones we want to rehabilitate and the ones we want to keep away f- for public safety. Yeah, and, and he's in the public safety category. Yeah. Now, I also uh, your real question is how was this handled from the, the government, government side? Government. Yeah, and it's been terrible. And I also think uh, you know equal opportunity for annoyance uh, also with the leader of the conservative party. The yeah, like. Because he, he, he kind of turned this into a little bit of a circus. Yeah. And I mean, that's all he seems to do is turn things yeah. into circuses. And uh, it's just, I I wish we had a place to have nuanced conversations beyond this podcast um, where it wasn't just the outrage machine all the time. Because I, like, I got to be honest, my outrage uh, button is broken. Like it's been pushed so much with uh with everything i just i'm i don't feel outraged about a lot anymore and i just want people to be able to talk peacefully and civilly and and come to a compromise of some kind that's the price of living in a society for god's sakes uh yeah that's that's sadly not something that's available to us let's talk about the availability of forums like that one to potentially have nuanced conversations, like, say, talk radio. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were two talk radio stations in London uh, about four days ago. Now there is one. And the amount of local content on either of those stations is going down and down and down and so forth. So CJBK, no longer a station. Bell pulled the plug this week. Dan, what do we do about this from a, a, a local media perspective? Just because there's been all sorts of talk about how, hey, the local media as we knew it, is not really going to exist anymore. What did you, what do you think when you found out about CJBK? So, I I mean I was sad uh, about it as um, I think anybody in the industry would feel when when one of the uh, one of your competitors or one of your like businesses yeah. shuts down. Well, um, I've worked with a bunch of people who were there. You've worked with yeah. people who were there. Yep. So. It, but but beyond being sad for the people, I'm also just sad for the industry as a whole because AM is a technology uh, that is becoming too cost prohibitive to do. And uh, the example, by the way, it, it isn't um, – in this case, it's not the people. It's actually the equipment. The Like an AM transmitter is significantly more expensive to run than an FM transmitter. So – Every radio station in the country or every radio company in the country who has an AM transmitter in the next 15 to 20 years is going to have the conversation of it's going to cost us a million dollars to replace this. Can we do that? 
And so while Bell was the first to shut one down, they're not going to be the last. What you think will happen, you know, for instance, maybe the AM, other AM talk radio station in London, maybe gets flipped onto an FM and they repeat that way. Like that might be how we know that's been discussed before. Yeah. Yeah. So that may be the viability for that one. Um, I, I do have other thoughts in general, but I don't want to, because I'm in the industry, I'd rather have you guys talk about it first and then I can provide another thought afterwards. So, uh, Mojde, Day, what were your thoughts when we found out that, uh, there's no longer going to be CJPK? I just hope that Gen Z brings back traditional media, like they brought back skinny, low rise bell bottoms. <laughs> <laughs> and if not, I'd like uh, Gen Alpha to do that. Yeah. And I, and I say this for different reasons. I built up, and I'm still working on this, me, uh, you know, a critical media analysis. And so when I receive information, there's a process I go through in sort of critiquing and, and generally receiving the information. And I want that for generations after us. And I don't see how we can get that um, without some of these foundational traditional sources of media that do things the way that, We've done them for a very long time. We have to be open to change and transition. Um, so I am sad about losing these tr- forms of uh, these mediums for exactly that. Building community, talk, building nuance and not everything being um, sort of this this new way of doing things. It's okay to adapt new ways. It's also great to, to preserve um, traditional forms of media. It's, it's really important. What I felt immediately after hearing this is that I think it's irresponsible to conduct surprise layoffs like this. Yes. Um, surely the C-suite knew and has been strategizing around this, and uh, and and you know didn't think of their stakeholders and their 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 workers. And I think we need to expect different standards and demand better from organizations as 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 big as uh, Bell Media. You you know shutting off Twitter and turning off the website and telling people the day of is 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 a really outdated and and quite frankly a disgusting way of of dealing with things. And I and I hope that they understand the implications of that should they try to dip further into any new media and 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 try to regain the trust of their their clients and customers i think it's absolutely appalling the way they dealt with things and it's 2023 yeah i i, I don't like it and you, you mentioned you know there doesn't seem to be a plan uh that station was uh, at a, an office building they had on wellington road with two other radio stations that were there they moved those three radio stations to where the television station is ctv television station is last year when that happened, my thought was, okay, it looks like at the very least there's going to be three stations there for a while. Otherwise, why would you bother moving if you thought you were going to shut a station down? But I don't think the left hand always knows what the right hand is doing. Uh, Jen, did you have uh, any reaction to the, the CJBK news from this week? I think like a combination of what both of you had said. Yeah. I was I was upset and uh, full disclosure, my partner works in radio. Um, I worked so, with your partner for 12 years. Yes. So, um, I mean, I, I know of some people who have lost jobs and that kind of thing. And um, the all of a sudden it's over wasn't a surprise to me because I feel like I've heard experiences of that happening from people being let go to new things starting with 
no warning um, over the years. But again, I don't work in the field. It's just me seeing from the the outside. Um, but what you said was really interesting about the cost of the AM, like having an AM station to begin. I had no idea. Why yeah, would I, I, but I, why would I know that? I think most but, people don't. And so they think, oh, it's there is a, there is it is a significantly higher cost. Yeah. So that's pretty that's interesting. And mm-hmm. I mean, it would, I guess, in my mind, make sense that technology would be changing and things would be different it would be more ex- expensive for the uh, the older, older ways things um and then i i also have this opinion which might not be liked but i'm like if, if people are really upset about it then also listen to the station then. <laughs> like yeah. give the station your ratings like you know there's a lot of people on spotify and there's a lot of people um satellite radio things like that well there's something to be said to listening to you know community radio as well and from a non-profit standpoint um radio like the you know the am stations and radio in general have always been so supportive of promoting our events or talking about our issues and so that's sad for us i think they should have offered with these mass layoffs uh, a you know community building strategy around this because there that local content can sometimes be lost like you know we don't have folks running podcasts the way you do Craig like you're taking local issues and you're bringing mm-hmm. it with local people and discussing it in a on a platform and I and I and I think it's easy to lose that when you don't have that localized FM community radio so to your point Jen I think it's it's important for us to to think about what are going to be the, the the intervention measures that we do now to ensure that the local stories are told in a good way, and there's still this hyper local content that mm-hmm. we can galvanize around. That's how you build community. Mm-hmm. What's Bell's plan for that? Yeah. I <laughs> they don't, don't know if it exists. I don't know that they have one for that, and yeah. I don't know. Well, I think we should be holding them to account for that. But I, but I also don't know that they think that's that's a responsibility of theirs. Like I, I we can disagree about that they might not think that's part of their job. Mm-hmm. And I, while I know like it was sudden for everybody to suddenly not have it, uh, I, I'll admit I also felt the same way when my favorite shawarma shop just down the road closed because I had no idea that they were shutting down and then all of a sudden the next day I went to go there and they were shut. So like it, it, is, a, uh, it is like that um, where, it can, where I think in a lot of industries things can just suddenly happen. It's only when you notice it, you're like, oh, this is now gone. The biggest, and what I wanted to wait to hear, and I, yeah. you know, it was sort of brought up, is the reason that I'm sad, mostly for like the industry as a whole, and this really came up during COVID, is that legacy media, be it newspaper, radio, television, have standards for journalistic integrity that they have to follow. Right. So when people during COVID were really upset with the media and for not sharing the other side of the story and they would send us links to these, you know, alternative websites. Like, why aren't you talking about this? Why aren't you talking about this? Because we can't verify it. Yeah. And we have an obligation and a responsibility to verify. Are you it saying we should have been talking more about uh, conspiracies from, you know, uh, America Eagle dot dot biz rather? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's but yeah. that's the point, yeah. right? Yeah. Is that yeah. the the Internet's a wild west where yeah. you are allowed to pretty much say or do whatever you want with no repercussions. And yeah. so losing a using a losing a journalistic voice in the city that ha- that held itself to a standard 
is a problem. And yes. the more when newspapers go away, when uh, when radio stations go away, when uh, when any of these legacy media goes away and is replaced by something, that something isn't necessarily held to the same same standard. And so it allows us to fall into those traps of being convinced with fake information yes. and it just divides us more. And, you know, my, my mentions on uh, when I was like reading like news stories and reading comments, which I normally admit I don't do because it's never a good place to be. But on this one, I wanted to see what people were saying. Uh, there was there was the 50 percent who were like sad and like uh, angry with Bell. And then the, there was the other side that was joyous at a bunch of, jur- you know, fake news journalists losing their jobs. Yeah. And, you know, this is it's a problem that's not going to go away, but it's a significant problem. Uh, people's lack of trust and faith in the media that is in many ways brought on by the media itself, either alternative medias or media that that lives in that outrage machine that we've been talking about. That entire purpose is to make you angry about stuff and doesn't care about what side of the line of truth that they're on. Journalistic credibility and integrity being lost is is key, Dan. Thanks for bringing that up and putting a pin in it strongly because that's that's where I was going with the analysis, you know, and, and critical analysis of media and, and, mm-hmm. and building that. I, you know, so now I have to do, I have to just work harder with my kids now. Thanks to Bell. Thanks, Bell, for that. <laughs> because now I have a whole new set of curriculum I have to introduce in my household because fake news is everywhere. And where, where does it start and stop with folks when they don't have the, those analytical skills yet or don't wish to even build or them? Or don't want to build them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, it's... It's sad on a lot of levels, and and one of them is just the number, the amount of spaces that have that do what we are doing right now, where people sit around and have opinions about local issues that are going on in this community, are just contracting and getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and that's that's the frustrating thing about it. So you know, maybe maybe podcasts like this are the way for the future for that. I don't know, but the thing with the podcast world is, as Dan mentioned. Uh, you can often say whatever you want on a podcast and whether it's true or not doesn't necessarily have to line up. On this podcast, we do say things that are true, typically. Uh, <laughs> and if not true, at least we believe them to be at true. Le- if not true, is, at least you believe Isn't that what truth true. really is, Craig? Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that entirely. Uh, on this podcast, we say things that uh, if, if, if someone thinks they're not true, they're more than welcome to, uh, to send us papers. But uh, every time someone does that, they lose. Uh, let's, talk about, uh, let's talk about the Volkswagen plan. And we got some details from the parliamentary budget officer this week that would say that the $12 billion investment that we used to get Volkswagen here was actually closer to a $16 billion investment. I don't know if I love the idea of giving a German-owned company $16 billion in tax breaks, subsidies, so on and so forth. Yeah, they they, they say they're going to bring jobs here, and that's great. But it feels as though if we were just looking to create jobs, there might be better ways that we could spend $16 billion with a B dollars. Uh, Mojde, what did you think of the the news we got surrounding how much the real cost of that Volkswagen deal is going to be? Well, I think that it, there needs to be more transparency on what yes. the return on investment is. I think there's a lack of clarity around that. But, uh, you know, 
it, it, did we get a bad deal or is this worth it? Well, this is the price we pay when we ignored the climate crisis for as long as we did. The future of transportation is going to have to be different than what we are engaging with right now. So, uh, you know, yes, is is it negligible when we're not getting full transparency on what the return on investment pa- is? Parliamentary Budget Office said is that the economic impact is negligible. Obviously, politicians would disagree. For sure, but yeah. even as a as a citizen and and a, and a like to consider myself an aware one, I'd yes. like to know what the return on investment so is. So would I. And I think that that there has to be transparency around that. But the future of our planet relies on these decisions. Are we asking the right question? Are the consequences going to cost us more if we don't make this shift and make these investments up front? Do we have a true critical analysis on whether we're asking the right questions in this moment in the first place? Yeah. Uh, so maybe this isn't so much a question surrounding how much did this cost, but uh, hey, are we doing the right things as far as where we're doing our investment? Now, they would argue that, hey, electric vehicles are good. and We're going to build electric vehicle batteries at this particular plant. So, okay, cool. But I don't know if that necessarily is some sort of a climate silver bullet. Jen, what do you think of this? I actually, so my my first thought about it was, well, isn't this kind of the direction we need to go in? So right. I was like, how do you how do you think about that any differently? And isn't it nice that it's southwestern Ontario that was chosen for the location for this place? Like, very basic thoughts, I guess. But you know, I exactly what Mojde said you know I mean we have to think about everything that has been done to this planet and the direction that we're on and the direction we we have to take and then the transparency piece too like you're you're telling me that they you know it was only going to be I forget the original amount 12 billion and now it's 16 billion like someone should probably have a I feel like the first number was actually like five or six billion okay I mean someone (laughs) should know that I mean like when you're doing any kind of job, you have an idea of like how much things might cost, like the projected cost and all of that. Like the transparency piece is is huge. Um, and I think it's difficult when there's so many issues in a community like ours that money could maybe be spent different in a different way, like, you know, with housing and combating violence against women and stuff like that. But this is a completely different um, industry and we need to look in that direction and kind of where we're going to be and where we need to be in the future. Um, so those are some of my my initial thoughts on on the topic, I guess. I, I, Dan, I don't think anyone should be surprised that, hey, you know the thing the government said would cost this number of dollars? <laughs> it actually costs a bigger number. Oh, I, I was going to ask you because you said you weren't a big fan of uh, spending 16 billion do you how do you're going to feel when you, we, they tell us it was actually 20 billion yeah because less, less good yeah like it's <laughs> the number is not going to get smaller and uh yeah they're not going to come in under they're not going to come in under budget but uh, yeah. but also on a like a larger scale um it's just you have to spend money on the like, and uh, you know we all know that but you have to spend it on the right things and blah 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 and we can talk about government waste and all that but the reality is not all debt is bad. Not all government spending is bad. 
if this brings, you know, construction jobs to build the factory, if it brings permanent jobs to build the batteries, uh, if it brings ancillary jobs and other restaurants and other hotels and other houses that get built because we need to find places. Yeah, it's all worth it. And it costs more. And if we had done it 10 years ago, it would have cost less. And if we had, you know, if we had decided to go through with the BRT, you know, two years ago, that's great. When we have that conversation about doing it again in 10 years, it's going to cost more than it would have two years ago or five years ago, whenever that debate was going on. If we had built a perimeter road for London in the fifties, it would cost a lot less than for us to do it now when it's now technically impossible to build. Like at some point you have to spend the money. That's so do I care? I don't know. <laughs> like I said, my outrage buttons, uh, <laughs> it worn out. I, I don't know how much I care either. No, no, here's here's what I'll say. I think that corporate welfare is bad. I think that writing checks to large corporations uh, with the promise of jobs, jobs, jobs is a bad thing. However, I don't think that any of our federal or political or provincial political parties are above it. So therefore, there's not a, and maybe this is a defeatist attitude, but there's not a lot we can do about no. it. And, <laughs> and I guess at the end of the day, is there any pride, you know, Southern, Southwestern Ontario pride in the fact that we got it and Oklahoma didn't? Mm. Right? Like, is maybe, there? I don't know. Yeah, I, I Like, hey, the, the, the people that are going to be working at that plant, be it from, they're from St. Thomas, be it they're from London, they're going to have really good jobs that are well-paying gigs, and they're going to be happy they have those jobs. Was the cost too much to get them? I think a lot of economists would say yes, but for the people who have those gigs, they're going to be pretty happy about it, and those people are going to live in this community. So, okay. Yeah, I'd like to pick apart why it costs what it's yeah what it's costing. What you know, yes, we have to support the the industry businesses that are leading the way on some new and innovative ways of doing things. But we know that in terms of technology. This is going to garner and attract a lot of investment. It already has. Um, and I'm reading automotive technology innovation has attracted more than 400 billion U.S. in investments over the last decade. So why are these corporations demanding so much money from governments to do the right thing and to support their technology and their innovation? We should be questioning that. Are our governments questioning that or are governments, you know, making fr- deeper friends with their deeper pockets, like why? We should be asking why is it costing what it is in a, in a different way, I think. Yeah, I uh, I, uh, I would agree with that. I, I think there, does, there needs to be some more analysis on this. Um, and maybe we'll provide that depending on how the story continues to, uh, to uh, evolve here uh, within the community. We'll have to wrap up this edition of the Craig Needles podcast there because we're up against it for time. So thanks very much to Moj Day and to Jennifer and to Dan for coming in and talking with us. And thanks to you for listening to, downloading, subscribing, reviewing the Craig Needles podcast, which of course can be found at classicrock981.com, londonnewstoday.ca, and on your favorite podcast app. The Craig Needles Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.